If the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. God wants to finish the story. And the very thing that we would love, he enfolds in himself all that would bring joy and life and peace to us. Welcome to Keep the Main Thing, a podcast of sermons and messages from Pastor Leland Evenson. I'm Mark Evenson. Today we have a sermon from Pastor Lee Evenson from Sunday, February 21st, 1988. This message is another message that Pastor Lee gave using 2 Corinthians as his basis for the sermon. As you recall from the last podcast, Pastor Lee was teaching a class on 2 Corinthians at North Heights Lutheran Church that winter in 1988. The title for today's message is, Is Your Heart In It? We are reminded by Pastor Lee that if our hearts are not in something, we do not give it our all, we do not give it our attention, we do not give it much effort, we just mail it in as the saying goes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 through 12, Paul gives us clues why he did not lose heart in spite of all he faced while spreading the gospel. Pastor Lee warns us that today, as well as back in 1988, we can lose heart in God by having the wrong impression of God, an impression that is formed by listening to others or even listening to ourselves, and not truly reading, understanding, and trusting God's Word. Pastor Lee describes the aspects of our heart that creates the right type of heart, allowing us to never lose heart. He uses a number of effective analogies and metaphors pertaining to Olympic athletes, specifically Winter Olympic athletes, because that Sunday in February 1988 was right in the middle of the 1988 Winter Olympics taking place in Canada. He ends his sermon with a story from one of Chuck Colson's books about the Roman Colosseum and the gladiators, a story about how a man who was an insignificant personality at best yet whose heart for something was so strong, he dramatically altered history. Here is, Is Your Heart In It? Pastor Leland Evenson on February 21st, 1988. Continuing in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, today, uh, lifting some things out of the fourth chapter as we go chapter by chapter. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to have you open to that. He begins the uh, fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians with these words, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. Contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. If your heart isn't in something, it's hard to do it. Maybe your heart isn't in worship this morning. Maybe your heart's someplace else. The other day I had to do some 
different responsibilities and my heart wasn't in it. I was concerned about a member of the family and uh, what was going on in their life. And uh, so for about four or five hours, I was trying to do the work and the ministry without my heart. It's hard to worship if your heart isn't in it. It's hard to be in a marriage if your heart isn't in it. It's hard to go to work day by day if your heart can't be there. We know when we have it and when we don't. We know when our heart is in something and when it isn't. There's a sense of passion and enthusiasm. You see it in the Olympics. You see the heart of those uh, men and women who race down those hills or go whirling around on those figure skates and you realize the passion and the enthusiasm and their heart certainly is in it in a tremendous way. Sometimes in the fall when we watch uh, football games, one of the announcers will say, they have to take the crowd out of the game. In other words, if the opposition wants to be able to uh, get along and to win, somehow they've got to take away the excitement of the crowd and their passion and their enthusiasm. And that often happens because the crowd is very fickle. And so the other team gets ahead and immediately the crowd just quiets down to a whimper and there's really no enthusiasm. And they've taken the heart out of the crowd. Paul was not one to be taken out of the game. They couldn't take the heart out of them. They beat them, they threw them in jail, they whipped them in a variety of ways. They tried to, to have Paul lose heart, but they couldn't do it. And so Paul begins this chapter and ends this chapter by saying, <clears throat> we do not lose heart. The Christian church is here today, and we can worship freely because there have been people who never lost heart. Reading about uh, one great missionary uh, William Hotchkiss, who was a pioneer missionary in Africa, he said these words, I dwelt 40 years practically alone in Africa. I've been 39 times stricken with fever, three times attacked by lions, several times by rhinoceros. But let me say to you, I would gladly go through the whole thing again if I could have the joy of again bringing that word Savior and flashing it into the darkness and envelops another tribe in Central Africa. <coughs> Excuse me. Luther didn't lose heart, even though he had a lot of obstacles and put in his way. Here I stand, I can do nothing else. Is your heart in it? Are you excited about the Christian faith and about your Christian walk? Your heart isn't in it. It's hard to be a Christian if you lose your first love. Paul gives us some clues here in these verses, I believe, in this chapter, why we don't have to lose heart. First of all, he had a pure heart. He said, we're not using deception or the, the distortion of the word. We open our lives. Our lives are an open book, and we commend ourselves to your conscience. What you see is what you get. This past uh, week and uh, off and on over a number of months and years, there's a group, the Moonies, who are trying to get into the Christian church, and so they promise <clears throat> they'll let you go on a trip over to Korea and other places and uh, be a part of that kind of fellowship and uh, they have banquets and uh, meals here in the cities they invite you to and they're constantly trying to get you to buy into their philosophy and uh, but they never let you know who they are unless you come out and right forthrightly ask them they they cover over you see they use some trite terms and right kind of phraseology that they've learned from us but they will never come out and say who they really are Paul said, we don't use deception. 
What we are is what you see. We don't distort the word. Every once in a while, another one of my pet peeves in terms of deception are these letters now with the new computers that make them sound like they're your, your closest friend, you know, dear Leland, and uh, so forth, and it goes on and on. And certainly with computers, they make you think that you're a long-lost friend or relative. That's deception. Trying to get money in, in ways that, are to me, are not going to be blessed by the Lord. And so the church often gets into this kind of philosophy. When we distort the word, we lose heart. The last uh, magazine, our official magazine, now had a touching article by a mother about her son who had, was a homosexual and died of AIDS. And somehow it tugs at your heartstrings and at your emotions. But as you read on and get to the end of the story, you realize that it's a distortion of God's word in terms of understanding homosexuality and loving the sinner and hating the sin. And so in sophisticated ways and sometimes not so sophisticated ways, there is a sense of trying to distort the Word of God today. January, uh, one of the issues of Newsweek had an article on a literal or literary Bible. A new uh, book has come out, The Literary Guide to the Bible. And the idea is that uh, for many people, the Bible certainly can't be taken as the Word of God, but it's a nice piece of literature. Abraham uh, Heschel, a man of great learning and prayer, complained that some people hail the Bible as literature as if that were the highest praise they could give it, as if it were the climax of spiritual reality. What would Moses or what would Jeremiah have said to such a praise? And he concludes by saying, perhaps the same as Einstein would have said if the manuscript of his theory of relativity were acclaimed for its beautiful handwriting. Not the handwriting, that has nothing to do with the theory of relativity. It's not seeing the Bible as a literary kind of masterpiece. If we don't see it for what it really is, if we distort the word, then we lose heart. And churches that are losing heart are churches who are not understanding the authority and trying to distort the word. Appreciated uh, Dave Fruoff between services, teaching now on the Holy Spirit, and today it was on the authority of the Word. And uh, there's a story about uh, the University of Minnesota Art Museum where they, for three decades, had displayed a painting called Oriental Poppies. It was only after the diligent work of an art historian that the museum authorities discovered the painting had been hung the wrong way. And so finally, uh, they realized that for 30 years, the museum goers had gotten the wrong impression of the masterpiece. Today, with our pop religious movements and uh, all kinds of distortions of the word, we are getting the wrong impression that somehow man's reason stands above the word and that we need to interpret the word according to our best thinking. And so it's simply the words of men about God and not God's word to us. And wherever that happens, we lose heart. We lose confidence in the word. 119th Psalm, it says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that the word has revived me. The 50th Psalm says, You hate my instruction and cast my word behind you. We're doing one or the other. We have confidence in his word, or we're casting it behind us. And to the degree we're doing one or to the other, to that degree we are losing heart or we're getting more excited. 
if the more we realize this is God's word to me, the more I become excited as Paul was excited in proclaiming the word. There's a confidence in the product. Uh, sometimes uh, different places we'll go and we'll say, uh, how much is this? And then we, we'll say, how about cutting the price? And, and if they have confidence in their product, they say, we won't cut the price. You may find imitations in other places, but this is the real thing. And we, we found out that people will pay for this product because of what it is. Paul was saying, we do not cut the price I have confidence in the word as it is. I don't have to sugar it up. We don't have to cut the price. We don't have to distort it. We don't have to bring it down to man's reason. Now, it's easy for you and me to talk about others distorting the word, but we can do it. We can do it when we fill out our income tax, distort the word to make it fit into the way I want my income tax to read or the way I spend my time, or the, in the way that I give my money. We can distort what it says about tithing and sacrificial giving <clears throat> terms to the Lord. And we try to distort that to make it say something other than my giving to the Lord in terms of that kind of discipline. Or relating to someone who I resent rather than sensing God saying forgive 70 times 7, we distort the word and make it say something that fits our lifestyles. But see, the moment we do that, we lose heart. It just dries up our spiritual life. We're not excited. Mo worship becomes motion, and uh, devotions become simply uh, going through some spiritual gymnastics. Paul didn't lose heart because he lived an open-hearted life. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. On the authority of God's word, I yesterday was waiting for somebody and reading about Steve Largent, a Seattle wide receiver. He had a hard beginning. He grew up, uh, his father left when he was 10 and <clears throat> some difficulties in his family. And when he was going to play football in high school, they said, you're too slow and you're too small. And they kept saying that all the way up. But all the way up, he overcame the obstacles till he became one of the great receivers and one of the great receivers for the Seattle Seahawks. He was too small and too slow. And yet he overcame the obstacles. <clears throat> he was convinced. And so Paul was convinced of the authority of the word. And nothing could cause him to lose heart. Are you excited? Because you sense the word for what it is. You're hanging it the right way, having the right view of it. Secondly, Paul talks about an enlightened heart in verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> for we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, <clears throat> let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul didn't start a fan club for himself. He didn't want to put his name in lights. There was a man who had a wood carving in his house that said, if your heart is cold, my fire cannot warm it. Paul knew that it wasn't him, that if people were going to be excited in their life and have a rainbow in their window and have hope in their life, that it would take something more than the, Paul's great intellectual gifts and all the talent that he had, the pop fire of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul wasn't enamored or taken in by starting his own fan club. 
like uh, Winston Churchill, uh, who had a real way of seeing things in perspective. Someone, uh, he was a man who realized that public favor was no sign of real success. And once after he'd given a speech to about 10,000 people, a friend said, Winston, aren't you impressed that 10,000 people came to hear you speak? <coughs> Churchill said, not really. 100,000 would come to see me hang. Paul was not enamored by the crowds or the lack of crowds, even as Jesus, because of his enlightened heart, because the light of the glory of Jesus had shone in his heart, and he realized that the fire of his life couldn't warm people's heart and change them, but the fire of the life of the Lord Jesus living in people could change and put rainbow in their windows, put hope in their lives, put a gate in their step, bring peace and joy and righteousness and all of those things. And so Paul didn't lose heart. Is your heart in it? Because the Holy Spirit is light, giving light and shining in your hearts to help you see the possibilities you are, the potentialities you are in the work of the kingdom, to see the potential of the gospel in a country where even, as I heard the other day, senators are getting disillusioned and no longer running for office because they feel there's no answer to the problems of our nation and of the world. Paul said, we are servants. Last Sunday I said that we can see ourselves as bills that other people owe us. Other people are here to serve us. Paul didn't lose heart because he had a servant's heart. And somehow when you have a sense of having a servant's heart, you're pumped up. If you're losing heart, maybe it's because you're seeing that other people are here to serve you in this world, whether it's in your home or in the body of Christ or where you work. Paul said, we are servants for Jesus' sake. For he who loses his life will find it. Meeting Mother Teresa, one is reminded of her servant's heart and what can happen as God has allowed them. Way back some years before when she was going to begin this orphanage, she went to her superiors and they <clears throat> said, Mother, uh, Sister Teresa, at that time, you can't, you be can't begin an orphanage she said, oh, I sure can. I have three pennies and the Lord. They said, you can't begin an orphanage with three pennies. She says, no, but with three pennies and the Lord. If God is for us, who can be against us? Is your heart in it? Do you have a sense of having a servant's heart? Has he enlightened you to see that we're here in these moments to serve and to give, to be the vessel that carries the treasure of his word. He goes on in verse 7 to say, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the all-surpassing powers from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, <clears throat> but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, <clears throat> so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. John Henry Jowett tells of a small village where an elderly woman died. When she died, she was penniless, she was uneducated and unsophisticated. But during her lifetime, her selfless service had made a tremendous impact for Christ on hundreds and hundreds of lives, and so on her tombstone, they chiseled the words, she did what she couldn't. 
For every Christian who allows Christ to live through him can do through us what we can never do ourselves. We have this treasure in earthen vessels to show the all-surpassing power is from God. She did what she couldn't. A fortified heart. A heart that understands that if God is for us, who can be against us? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There's a lot of dying when you go to the Olympics. Those men and women who go there, they have to die to a lot of things, a lot of comfort, <clears throat> a lot of conveniences. They spend day after day, six, eight hours skating or skiing or doing their training for that Olympics. And so in order for that life to come forward, for them to be able to compete, they have to die. So God is saying through this text, as Paul tells us, that the more we die to ourselves, the more the life of Jesus can come forward, the more we're willing to sacrifice our own reputation, <clears throat> our own conveniences, our own comfort, the more <clears throat> the life of the Lord can come through us as our heart is fortified by his presence. Eric Hyden, who in 1980 won five gold medals <clears throat> in the uh, speed skating, said, you know, I like the 1,500-meter race the best because I've got to prepare for the pain. The only way to win is by suffering a lot. And when he won, his lungs were affected so much that for days they bothered afterwards. But he was willing to endure the pain that he could have the medal. He was willing to die, to forget it. And so with Paul, we're carrying in our body the death of Jesus. We're hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, but somehow Paul had a fortified heart and all of the obstacles they put in his way wouldn't take him out of the game. His heart was in it. It may take a crucified church to take a crucified Christ before the eyes of the world. Is your heart in it? To be willing to overcome, to die to yourself, to die, someone calling you a religious fanatic, which they always try to do if you love Jesus. There was an island in the Pacific. And on the island, there were a lot of farmers. And one peasant farmer, one day, he was up on his hilltop farm. And suddenly, he felt the earth shaking. And he saw the ocean receding from the shore. And he was, it was getting set for what he knew would be a great tidal wave. And he saw his neighbors down in the <clears throat> low country, down in the floodplain, working in their fields and in their gardens. And all of a sudden, he realized the problem. And so he ran and began set fire to his rice barn and began to ring the fire gong. And as soon as the people saw the fire and heard the gong, they ran up the hill to help him. And then to their horror, they saw the waters covering the fields where they had come from only minutes before. They realized what their benefactor had done. They put up a monument in his honor that said, he gave us all he had and gave it gladly. That's the story of Lent, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He gave it all he had and gave it gladly. That's what puts fire in our hearts, that kind of love, that kind of rainbow. Do you know him? Do you know this Jesus and that personal relationship? So he's put a fire in your heart. So you're willing to do whatever and be whatever, to die to yourself more and more, that his life can come forth in you. 
Are you willing to set fire to your rice barns, to your reputation, to your schedule, to your values and your priorities? Are you willing? For only as we're willing will we not lose heart. Only as we realize that he gave all will we give all to him. They didn't lose heart. Can you imagine? Can you imagine going up to one of those young men or women who are standing on that top step and now they're playing the national anthem for their country and going up and saying, well, was it worth it? Was it worth it, son? Was it worth it, daughter? The calisthenics, the hours of training, all that you had to go through, was it really worth it for this? You don't have to ask them. You can see it all over their face. Do you think you'll have to go up to Paul or John Huss or William Hotchkiss or Wycliffe? Was it worth it? Was it worth it to receive the crown of life? What a foolish question. Of course it's worth it. For Paul always kept in view that as he ends up... <clears throat> we know the one who raised the Lord from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Paul kept that gold medal, you see, always before him in the midst of obstacles, in the midst of a world that didn't believe, in the midst of being crushed and knocked down and all of that, in the midst of losing battles. He never lost the war because he saw the treasure of the gospel, the hope of the world, the rainbow in the window was what kept him going day after day. We can't distort the word. We must receive the word. We must let it enlighten us and do its work in us. We must let it fortify us as a fortified Paul. Chuck Colson ends his book with a beautiful story that I end this meditation with. It was about a monk called Telemachus lived in the fourth century, a very simple little monk who lived way off in the corner of the Roman Empire. He worked in the gardens and sometimes in the kitchen. He spent his time in study and prayer when he wasn't in the garden or kitchen. And one day the monk sensed the Lord was calling him to go to Rome. He didn't know why. It was the busiest, wealthiest, biggest city in the world. He was terrified at the thought, but he sensed that God was directing them there. And so the bewildered little monk set out on foot over the dusty roads with everything he owned on his back. Why was he going? He didn't know. But he knew he was being obedient. Telemachus arrived in Rome during the holiday festival. They had just won a great victory <clears throat> over the Goths, and they were bustling with excitement. He was still looking for clues why God had brought him here. He didn't have any religious superior to contact. No other guidance. Perhaps, he thought, it's not sheer coincidence that I've arrived at this festival time. Perhaps God has some special role for me. So he let the crowds guide him, and as he followed the crowds, they went to the great Colosseum, for there they had their circuses where the gladiators would fight each other to the death. And as soon as he was in there, he realized what was going to happen, though he'd never seen it before. And as the gladiators marched into the arena, saluted the emperor and shouted, We who are about to die salute you. Telemachus shuddered. He'd never heard of the gladiator games before, but he had a premonition of the awful violence. The crowd had come to cheer men who for no reason other than amusement would murder each other. Human lives were offered for entertainment. 
And as the monk realized what was going to happen, he ran up to stand on one of the walls overlooking the great Arun and said, In the name of Jesus, forbear. The fighting began, of course. No one would pay any attention to this little puny voice. So the little monk pattered down the steps, leaped over the wall onto the sandy floor of the arena. He made a comic figure, a scrawny man in a monk's habit, dashing back and forth between these muscular gladiators trying to get him to stop. One gladiator sent him sprawling with a blow from his shield, telling him to get back to his seat. But Telemachus refused to stop. He rushed into the way of one of them again, shouting, In the name of Jesus, forbear! The crowd began to laugh and cheer. They thought it was part of the entertainment and thinking it was very entertaining to see this little monk trying to stop these two gladiators. Then his movement blocked the vision of one of the contestants and the gladiator almost got hit by a blow. Then the crowd got furious and said, run him through, run him through. Gladiator he had blocked raised his sword and with a flash of steel struck Telemachus, slashing down across his chest into his stomach. The little monk gasped as he sank to the floor of the arena with his last words in the name of Christ, forbear. Then a strange thing occurred. The two gladiators in the crowd focused on the still small form taking his last breath and the sandy arena becoming now crimson with his blood. There was a deadly silence. The silence, someone got up in the top tier and walked out. Another followed. All over the arena, spectators began to leave until the huge stadium was empty. There were other forces at work, of course, but that innocent figure lying in the pool of blood crystallized the opposition. And that was the last gladiator contest in the Roman Colosseum. Never again did men kill each other for the crowd's entertainment in the Roma arena. God can do great things through little insignificant monks. We are a potentiality. We are a promise if our heart's in it. And God is looking for that kind of person who is willing to pay that price to get into the arena, to have the courage of the Lord Jesus at work in him. To die to ourselves that Jesus might live. The church has gone on because there have been those kinds of people who haven't lost heart, who haven't given up, who have stuck with the authority of the word and the power of the spirit and seen the sacrificial love of Jesus change their hearts. For we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show the power belongs to him. Is your heart in it? Is it only motion? Are you allowing the word to speak to you? Are you allowing his spirit to fortify you, to enlighten you? How desperately we need that kind of courage today and not to lose heart. For then God can use us. And then there will be that day when the great anthem of the kingdom will be played and we too will receive our medals. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And no one will have to say to you or to me, was it worth it? Was it worth it to be riddled with indifference or ridicule or opposition or swords? No one will have to say that. One will be able to see it all over the faces of those who didn't lose heart.
it was worth it. For this is a medal not just for a few moments of glory on earth, but for his glory and forever to celebrate the great victory that will never end. And that's what Paul kept in view. The one who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Amen. Thank God there have been thousands of Christians we have known or heard about whose hearts were really in it. And millions of other Christians going all the way back to Jesus' resurrection who we never knew or heard about who also gave their all, their lives, to carry forth the good news. And it all started by having their hearts in it. So is your heart in it? Do not lose heart. Remember the monk who visited Rome and put an end to the 650-year reign of the gladiators fighting in the Colosseum. Thank you to Spencer, Lee, and Shauna who continue to have a heart for this podcast and to all of you listeners as well who have a heart for this podcast. Until next time, may the peace of God which passes all understanding keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.